Today on Peace Talks Radio, hear the story of Liu Jiabo, the Chinese dissident who was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2010. In 2017, Liu Jiabo died at the age of 61, while on medical parole from the 11-year prison sentence he was serving for trying to overthrow the government. He was being treated for liver cancer. Chinese officials denied opportunities for him to seek treatment overseas. Today on Peace Talks Radio, we're rebroadcasting a program about Liu Jiabo. He is tolerant, and he is rational, and he has passion and feeling. I mean, trying to, again, put yourself in his shoes where he's in prison here and writing this, it's almost beyond comprehension, really. I mean, what he's writing about. All today on Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Today on Peace Talks Radio, we're rebroadcasting a program about Liu Jiabo, the Chinese dissident who won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2010. He was in prison at the time. He was serving an 11-year prison sentence in China for his dissident activities. He was being treated for liver cancer. Chinese officials denied opportunities for him to seek treatment overseas. This year's Nobel Peace Prize was awarded today to a man who will not be able to accept it in person. That's because Liu Xiaobo is serving 11 years in a Chinese prison for subversion, advocating free speech and democracy there. He is perhaps China's best-known dissident. The Norwegian Nobel Committee, by the way, cited his long and nonviolent struggle for fundamental human rights. The Chinese government criticized the award, saying it runs completely counter to the principles of the prize. NBC's coverage of the announcement that Chinese professor and human rights advocate Liu Jiabo had won the 2010 Nobel Peace Prize. And true to NBC anchor Brian Williams' prediction, Jiabo was not able to attend the awards ceremony in December of that year in Oslo. In a solemn Oslo ceremony, this year's Nobel Peace Prize winner was celebrated with an empty chair. Instead, Chinese dissident Liu Xiaobo is in this Chinese prison, serving 11 years for subversion, for promoting democracy. His wife's under house arrest in this apartment complex, silenced along with dozens of associates. The crackdown has had one simple objective, to prevent anybody, his wife here, or other family, friends or supporters from getting to Oslo to receive the prize on his behalf controversy surrounding this year's Nobel Peace Prize winner is growing. The government has blacked out international broadcasts about the Peace Prize and blocked websites, even some references this evening to empty chairs. The authorities have angrily condemned the award and called the Nobel jury anti-China clowns. NBC's Ian Williams. Although the world's attention was drawn to the basic story of Liu Jiabo around the Peace Prize announcement, there's much more to explore, which we'll do today on Peace Talks Radio, as we later talk with poet Jeffrey Yang, who's translating into English Liu Jiabo's essays called The June 4th Elegies. But first, a conversation with another Chinese writer, who, while never having met Liu Jiabo in person, has had many conversations and email exchanges with the Chinese professor in between his many imprisonments by the Chinese government. Tianxi Liao of the Independent Pen Center will tell us about Jiabo's philosophy, writings, and his historic role in the Tiananmen Square turmoil of 1989 in China. 
She's at her home in Cologne, Germany. Tianxi Liao, welcome to Peace Talks Radio. Thank you. Tell us how you do know Yo Jiabo. Uh, he worked for our website uh, since 2002. Uh, I worked in Washington, D.C. We have a Chinese website. We just work as a journal, and Liu Xiaobo is one of our authors. But I have read his articles and books many years ago, so I'm familiar with his writings. And uh, since that time, I actually, I talk to him on the phone once in a week. Uh, he is our regular uh, contributor. How would you describe the role his voice uh, and his writing played in the years leading up to the Tiananmen Square protests of 1989? Liu Xiaobo has started his writing since... Uh, late 70s and actually in the uh, early 80s. He uh, studied Chinese literature in Jilin Daxue and later in Beijing Normal University from 1982 to 84. Afterwards, he uh, worked as lecturer. He is a very sharp observer of the happenings in the society, and he has his very profound ideas about all the happenings uh, in China. You know that Deng Xiaoping has started the reform politics in the early 80s, and lots of problems which were the consequences of this very radical ideological dogmatism of communism. So lots of problems happens after two decades of uh, this uh, policy. And Liu Xiaobo observed all these problems and write down his th thoughts. And uh, lots of his article has raised uh, large attention among young people especially among the intellectuals. So I think this is a prelude to the happenings in 89, if you will. Right. I think it would be useful to recap for our listeners some of the key history, particularly around the Tiananmen Square protests. So Liu Xiaobo was out of the country in 1989, but he returned in April just weeks before the protests and the killings there. And now at that time, was he drawn back by the turmoil, uh, sort of sensing its uh, importance? Yes, I think he has a sense of all the important happenings. The, the whole movement started in April, and it develops to to a really mass uh, protest action in, in May. And Liu Xiaobo uh, went back to China because he wanted to be part of it. And uh, as we all know, he, is a, he, he used to be a teacher in the university, and he is a very good speaker. And so he went back to uh, Beijing and really played an active role mm. in the whole movement. Right, and he was in his uh, early 30s at the time. Let's remind our listeners of some of the dramatic turns that he was actually involved with 
in those days uh, before the June 4th massacre in Tiananmen Square. Yes. He participated in a hunger strike, didn't he? Yes. He participated uh, in the hunger s- strike of these so-called four gentlemen uh, together with uh, Zhou Duo, it's another young teacher in the university, and the singer Hou Dejian from Taiwan, and another editor with the name Gao Xin. And what was the purpose of the strike? Was it to win confidence from the student protesters, or tell me more about that? Yes. These four young men started their hunger strike on June 2nd, and they have uh, drafted uh, an announcement to tell people the reason why they started a hunger strike. They named four reasons. First of all, they said, we have no enemies. I mention this because, uh, you know, 20 years later, uh, uh, Liu Xiaobo was sentenced now to 11 years, and he has also written another statement is also called I have no enemies. So at that time, this four young men has written in one document. And the first point is that we have no enemies. And second, we want to reflect, we want to show our responsibilities as a Chinese citizen. And then the third point they mentioned is that we do not go after the death. We go after the true life. We are looking for a true life in China. So they want to show with this um, statement that they are not uh, against the government or against the army, but they just want to show their free will. They want China has its change, change against all the unfair and wrong things what happened in the recent years. The fourth point is they mentioned uh, that we are all citizens. With this point, I think they want to to um, just remind the government this is our basic rights. Mm-hmm. It's not written, but they just mention we are citizens. They don't want to have direct confrontation with the government or with the authority, but they want to show their free will. Right. It doesn't sound much like a militant uprising of the citizenry, but it uh, it sounds very simply uh, that they want their voice heard. Yes, it is. Twenty years ago, um, that was end of 80s. The people in China, they are still under the shock of the Cultural Revolution. And they are still totally scared uh, from the authority. Nobody dares to really uh, criticize openly the authority. If they do the protest, they just say, well, some corrupt uh, officers, this and that, but they never really directly attack the, the Chinese Communist Party. This is an untouchable topic. Mm-hmm. So let's go to the next chapter in that story. Of course, things go horribly badly in Tiananmen Square, uh, but Liu Xiaobo is instrumental in helping to keep it from getting much, much worse. 
in arranging for the peaceful escape of some of the students. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. These four young men, they started their hunger strike on June 2nd. Several hours later, the situation becomes really severe in uh, on the Tiananmen Square, and he and also the other student leaders started uh, to uh, try to negotiate with the authority. But they don't have the full authority because lots of students, they, they are tired and they are, they are so excited. They just don't follow any uh, leader's words. Well, it was just so much chaos, I can only imagine. It's just lots of chaos, so nobody is really have the authority to tell the people to calm down. We have to, to act collectively. Let's do it this and that way so that we can have more, a little bit more safety or we can get a certain guarantee from the authority that we can retreat. And so nobody can speak to the, to, can persuade the student. So if they negotiate with the authority, the, the soldiers, the, the officers don't believe them. And if they talk to the student, the student don't believe them that they can persuade the authority. So it was a very difficult role for him to play. So he was arrested and put in prison, um, expelled from his university, his publications were banned. He was convicted of crimes against the state, but released in 1991, and he was acknowledged for his actions to help limit the bloodshed there at Tiananmen Square. And, and I guess he wrote and traveled for four years before being arrested yet again. So he was again in and out of prison, constantly under surveillance in the late 1990s and early 2000s. Can you describe some of what he was writing during this time that was important? Yes. Uh, he After he was released uh, from the prison in 1991, he uh, actually traveled to Australia in '93 and also in the United States, actually he has the chance to stay in, stay abroad and uh, continue his career as a scholar or as a literary critic. But he decided to go back to China and he believes that uh, this is a place where he belongs to and if he has the right to speak out or to write something, to criticize something, or to, to describe something, he has to be in this country and in this get involved in the, the society. Right. Otherwise, he does not have the right to say this and to criticize that. So he decided to go back to China. And in, in during th those years, uh, which you mentioned from... 91 to 96, till he was arrested again. He has written lots of articles. For instance, um, uh, for the sixth anniversary of, of the massacre, that was 1995, he has uh, written an article and asked the government to reevaluate the, the movement, the Tiananmen movement. And because of those articles, he was arrested again. Right, because 
the government wants this event to slip into obscurity, and it sounds like Liu Xiaobo's, one of his main goals is to make sure that it doesn't. Yeah. Right. Liu Xiaobo has written five poems, very long poems, to commemoration of June 4th. Altogether, he has written five very long poems just to express his everlasting memory of this happiness on Tiananmen Square. So that is exactly what the government doesn't want. Yeah. We'll hear more later from Chinese writer and human rights activist Tianqi Liao speaking to us about 2010 Nobel Peace Prize winner Liu Xiaobo. Again, this is a rebroadcast of an earlier program while Liu Xiaobo was still alive and still in prison. He died in 2017 while on medical parole from his 11-year prison sentence. He died of liver cancer. Chinese authorities denied him treatment overseas. But when we return, we will hear a translated excerpt of Jiabo's aforementioned June 4th elegies when Peace Talks Radio continues right after this break. Today on Peace Talks Radio, we're rebroadcasting a program about Liu Xiaobo, the Chinese dissident, who won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2010. He was in prison at the time. He was serving an 11-year prison sentence in China for his dissident activities. He was being treated for liver cancer. Chinese officials denied opportunities for him to seek treatment overseas. And today we are profiling the 2010 winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, Chinese professor Liu Xiaobo, whose written critiques of the Chinese Communist government have landed him in prison many times. That's the voice of Liu Xiaobo during a visit to Australia just before his 2009 arrest and imprisonment by the Chinese government. He was interviewed by reporter Liz Jackson for an Australian documentary program. But realistically, how many people in the huge population that China has, know enough or care enough to speak out publicly for human rights and democracy now? Do you ever feel like that you're just a small minority that the government can afford to just contain or ignore? Liu Jiabo is saying, well, it's hard to say. In my case, I haven't stopped criticizing the government from the time I got out of prison in 1999 until now, which makes nine years. People keep saying, Jiabo, you'll be back inside soon. You'll be back inside soon. 
But it hasn't happened yet, has it? I think the government is under increasing pressure from ordinary people. If they arrest and sentence someone, they have to take into account the political cost, particularly with high-profile people. It's not true that the government can simply ignore us, that they don't care what we do. If they didn't care, then they would not go to such lengths to monitor and control us. I also sense that the community which empathizes with us, supports us, and is prepared to speak out for us is growing. Every year the numbers are increasing. My optimism about China is not something I judge by what the authorities are doing, but by what the growing power of ordinary people are doing. But we cannot expect things to change overnight in China. I think it's a very slow process. Within your lifetime? Well, maybe not, despite all my efforts for so long. As Tianqi Liao mentioned earlier, since his participation in the Tiananmen Square protests of 1989, Liu Xiaobo has written regularly to mark the anniversary of the massacre on June 4, 1989, of many hundreds of protesters by Chinese troops. Grey Wolf Press will release an English translation of those long poems, the June 4 elegies, in 2012. Poet and literary editor Jeffrey Young is working on those translations now, and he joins us from the offices of New Directions Publishers in New York. Welcome to Peace Talks Radio. Thank you. It's nice to uh, be here. And Jeffrey, when did you first encounter personally the writings of Liu Jiabo? Um, It was through Penn, uh, Penn uh, the Penn Foundation. What is the Penn Foundation? Oh, they're a literary organization, an international literary organization, and they have their main offices in New York. And they run um, various programs, uh, and one of the programs that they do run is a Freedom to Write program. And since his, his most recent trial and then imprisonment, they've been in close touch with his wife, at least until she was put under house arrest and not unable to talk to anybody. It was through them, it was uh, two summers ago, they, the managing editor uh, of their literary magazine, they uh, asked me if I wanted to translate some of his poems, and they sent me uh, some poems. So I read them, and I said I would translate a few for them, which I did. Um, I, at, up to that point, I had known who he was, but I had never read anything of his. Yeah, so can you remember then, I guess, what you're describing is sitting at the computer uh, and opening up uh, these uh, documents. What struck you about them initially when you first laid eyes on them and uh, started to experience him that way? Well, initially, um, it was, they were, they were very intense personal poems. Each one was in some way dedicated to his wife, Liu Xia, but also they were all written while he was in prison. I'm trying to remember exactly when, it was in the 90s. And so these poems came directly from his wife. So that was kind of the first thing, the very kind of personal, intense, emotional level, but also just the bleakness, but also the, he, he wasn't, it, there was ho a hope, you know, in these poems as well. Um, and not overtly political in any way. They were more kind of, um, I mean, a lot of these poems that I've been translating now, it's about recovering memory, not forgetting, you know. And so it was a lot of that, too, involved. Well, you've begun work on this bilingual edition of the June 4th Elegies, which is this collection written and inspired by the 
June 4th, 1989 massacre of hundreds of protesters by Chinese soldiers. Right. Have you begun work on those? Yes, I have. I've, I've, I've have probably about a third of the book done. The way the book's structured is that um, each year after 89, around the time of Tiananmen, he has sat down to write a poem or a series of poems eulogizing or, or um, in memorial to the time during Tiananmen. And it's this act, again, of remembrance. And so each year, for 20 years, he's done this. So one of the things that has been amazing to see is just basically, in Liu's own words, what he's thinking, what he, you know, went through, and, and his whole kind of world outlook, his aesthetic outlook. Well, I'm imagining that you must have a feeling of um, playing an important role in introducing this work to an English-speaking audience. As you say, there hasn't been much in translation. And just to use the United States as an example, I mean, I think there was some intrigue about the announcement of his winning the Nobel Prize and recognizing that he was not free to accept it. Right. But after that, you know, it's like, okay, he was a freedom worker in China, a poet, and they shrug the shoulders and say, well, that's the last I'll have to think about Liu Xiaobo. <laughs> you know, what a shame. But here's an opportunity for them to really uh, understand who he was and his career as a writer. You know, hopefully the idea of, of a prize like this is that um, that we're all kind of accountable here on this earth, uh, countries, individuals. Of course, each nation has its own set of problems and oppressions to a certain degree, but um, that, that the Chinese government, I mean, they, if the 21st century is theirs, uh, like everybody is saying, is like they're acting, they, they, can't, they, they're, they're, they can't really act like this. If they want to survive, you know, as, as, a, as a nation and stuff uh, today. Uh, and so I think when a prize like this, in the long run, it could be a more positive thing, uh, especially as his work becomes, you know, more known. I don't think even in China, if people want to read his work online, they can. But hopefully down the line, his books will be available there. And I think it will be a more positive thing of, of changing things because uh, something, you know, has to change in that respect there. Uh, Jeffrey Young, uh, what do you think Liu Xiaobo's writing has to offer to the curious who would like to explore his work in terms of peace messages that they could apply to their own lives? Yeah, I think so. I mean, definitely. He's uh, he, he's lived an extraordinary life. I mean, he, um, so it's it's also one of the life and the work. And so what he's writing in his poems about memory and remembering this time and, and how relevant it is today and how relevant memory is for us to progress as people, you know, that's already, that's, uh, you know, an amazing message to, to, to see through his life and his work, but also all that he's been through, he, he's, he's so much in different ways emphasizes the, that he bears, I mean, he bears no hate. He, the, 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 the famous 
speech he gave or the the words he he spoke at his trial um i have no enemies you know is basically everything that he's been through he doesn't harbor any hatred he understands kind of a bigger picture of how things work and how the way power structure works and that hatred is one thing that is needs to be overcome if we're even going to be talking about peace there is no hatred towards the government towards china i mean that is kind of one of the amazing things and i think that people I don't know, or at least in the media, it kind of gets overlooked. Is that you know he of course loves his country and he loves you know he stayed there. He did not leave like you know many people did, um, understandably. Um, but he decided to stay there, and so I think that's one of the strongest kind of things that I'm seeing as I'm going through that 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 keeps coming up in different ways. You know. Well, Jeffrey Young, as we move toward conclusion, could you read some? Excerpts from the June 4th elegies that you find especially compelling? Sure. Um, so this is a um, series of poems from June 4th elegies. It's from it's the book Liu Xiaobo dedicates to the mothers of Tiananmen and for those who can remember. The mothers of Tiananmen are an activist group um, that are still present for those uh family who lost loved ones during Tiananmen. It's the first section, first section called Experiencing Death. He wrote it when he was in Qingcheng prison. It's dated June 1990. And each section of this book, he kind of gives as an anniversary offering of June 4th. So this is the first anniversary offering. Monument, waves of weeping, marble grain fused with blood-stained veins, Belief in youth, beaten beneath the tank's rust-chained tracks. Ancient story of the East, leaks out new hope unexpectedly. The glorious crowds have little by little disappeared, like a river that slowly, steadily dries away. Landscape on both shores transformed to stone. Every throat has been strangled by fear. Every trembling has traced the dissipated nighter smoke. Only the executioner's steel hood glints, luminous glints. Two. I cannot recognize the flag anymore. The flag, like an unknowing child, flung upon mother's corpse, returns home wailing. I cannot tell day from night anymore. Time's been petrified by gunshots, as if a paralytic without memory. Gun's barrel braces my lower back. I've discarded my passport and identity card. In the bayonet and flame dawn, that once familiar world cannot find a handful of dirt to bury itself in. Red-bared heart collides with iron and steel. No water, no greenness of earth. Duties ravaged sunlight. Three. They wait and wait, wait for time to invent an exquisite lie, wait for the transformation of the bestial hour. Indeed, wait until fingers transform to sharpened claws, eyes transform to a gun's mouth, feet transform to chained tracks, air transforms to a command. It arrives, at last it arrives, 
the 5,000-year-awaited command. Open fire, kill people. Kill people, open fire. Peaceful petition, hands unarmed. An old man's cane, a child's torn jacket. The executioner will never be swayed. Eyes burnt to red, gun barrels shot to red, hands dyed red, a bullet, a mud-thick secret spills out, a crime, a kind of heroic feat. How relaxing death's arrival. How easy bestial desires are satisfied. Young soldiers, recently clothed in uniform, still haven't felt the drunkenness of a girl's kiss. But now, in an instant, experience the bloodthirsty pleasure of murder, their youth's beginnings. They who cannot see the blood-soaked dress, cannot hear the struggle's scream, through steel helmets cannot perceive life's fragility. They aren't aware of the fatuous old man who's transforming the ancient capital into another zone of Auschwitz. Brutality, iniquity, rise up from the earth like the splendor of a pyramid, while life crumbles into the abyss, where even the faintest echo cannot be heard. The massacre has engraved a nation's tradition, years, months, as remote as an abandoned language that enacts a final farewell. And this is the last section, four. I had imagined being there beneath sunlight with the procession of martyrs, using just the one thin bone to uphold the true conviction. And yet, the heavenly void will not plate the sacrificed in gold. A pack of wolves, well-fed, full of corpses, celebrate in the warm noon air a flood with joy. Far away place, I've exiled my life to this place without sun to flee the era of Christ's birth. I cannot face the blinding vision on the cross. From a wisp of smoke to a little heap of ash, I've drained the drink of the martyrs, sent springs about to break into the brocade brilliance of myriad flowers. Deep in the night, empty road, I'm biking home. I stop at a cigarette stand. A car follows me, crashes over my bicycle. Some enormous brute sees me. I'm handcuffed, eyes covered, mouth gagged, thrown into a prison van heading nowhere. A blink, a trembling instant passes to a flash of awareness. I'm still alive. On central television news, my name's changed to Arrested Black Hand, though those nameless white bones of the dead still stand in the forgetting. I lift up, high up, the self-invented lie, tell everyone how I've experienced death, so that Black Hand becomes a hero's medal of honor. Even if I know death's a mysterious unknown, being alive there's no way to experience death, and once dead cannot experience death again, yet I'm still hovering within death, a hovering and drowning, countless nights behind iron-barred windows, and the graves beneath starlight have exposed my nightmares. Besides a lie, I own nothing. So that's the first section of the book. <laughs> well, Jeffrey Young, as a poet yourself, what impresses you most about 
the work you just read? I mean, trying to, again, put yourself in his shoes where he's in prison here and writing this. It's almost beyond comprehension, really. I mean, what he's writing about. And so there, there is this really sense of personal guilt, too, for him, I think, that he's expressing here. There is, of course, anger, too. But, you know, again, I don't see the hatred that so easily can, you know, can fall into. And I don't know his personal religious beliefs, but that idea of redemption is there and forgiveness and forgiveness as needing a necessary part of progressing as a person, whatever you believe. Well, is there anything else that uh, I didn't ask you about that as you prepared for this conversation that you thought you wanted to say about your experience or Liu Jabo's work? There is one thing specifically towards your program. I mean, I could add a little bit uh, of which relates to what we just talked about um, in that poem. I mean that, and then your program, like peace, peace, uh, the the word peace, and and the 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 root of it being, uh, I think, in Sanskrit, pack, as in um, to bind, to bind, uh, also meaning. Um, a payment, a payment of a debt that's owed. And I think a lot of what, of, of the piece that is coming through this and what Leo Chabot is writing about is paying a debt, a necessary payment towards these people who lost their lives in Tiananmen and also what that movement stood for, you know, and not forgetting that. So that's kind of what I wanted to add to that. Jeffrey Young is a poet and literary editor who is creating a translation of the June 4th Elegies, written by 2010 Nobel Peace Prize winner Liu Xiaobo, the Chinese teacher and poet who has been in prison since 2009 for his calls for reform in the Chinese government. He was unable to attend the Peace Prize ceremony himself. We'll have more about Liu Xiaobo's story with writer and literary freedom advocate Tianqi Liao when we return on Peace Talks Radio, right after this. Today on Peace Talks Radio, we're rebroadcasting a program about Liu Xiaobo, the Chinese dissident, who won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2010. He was in prison at the time. He was serving an 11-year prison sentence in China for his dissident activities. He was being treated for liver cancer. Chinese officials denied opportunities for him to seek treatment overseas. We resume our conversation now with Chinese writer Tianqin Liao, who, as we said earlier, never met Liu Xiaobo in person, 
but had many conversations and email exchanges with him in between his many imprisonments by the Chinese government. Qianqi Liao of the Independent Penn Center has been speaking to us from her home in Cologne, Germany. Tianqi Liao, is it fair to say that Liu Jiabo has been a wholesale advocate for Western-style democracy, elections, and free markets in his writings? I think so. Liu Jiabo, in his young days, uh, I mean, when he was really very young in his 20s, he, uh, of course, he was very much influenced by Marxism and so on, and he loves uh, Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche, St. Augustine, and so on. Uh, but later, he uh, becomes more mature. And he, and he also he, he also admires um, the very pragmatic uh, politicians and political thinkers. For instance, Martin Luther King is one of his heroes. And he also is an admirer of uh, uh, George Bush and uh, Tony Blair, and so on. So Liu Xiaobo is convinced that the American and the British uh, political system is a better better one than the others. All these are, for, for him, a model which uh, probably um, China can adapt, a system which uh, is good for China, and one of his dreams is uh, that every Chinese citizen can enjoy the rights of election. He knows that the capitalism is not the best system, but free market and free trade is something that he really high-valued. I can only say that since there is no other model for, for, for China, he thinks capitalism or democratic system is the better one. Mm-hmm. And yet, uh, I would say that some admirers of Dr. Martin Luther King, for example, uh, would probably have cause to pause around the support that Niu Jiabo and an admiration that he had had for Tony Blair or George Bush, he's, he's been on the record saying that U.S. wars, he believes, were mostly ethically defensible and that they opposed dictatorships and advanced human rights. Mm-hmm. I think some admirers of King would have a little bit of trouble with that stance of Yo Jiabo. Um, do these writings you know, make him any less of a champion of nonviolence in, in your view? Um. No, actually, personally, I don't have the problem. But I think you have to understand that Liu Xiaobo got all his information from the Chinese media. I mean, not from the Chinese media inside China, but the overseas Chinese media. And the overseas Chinese media are 80 to 90 percent are uh, how shall I say, pro-American and British, especially after the first Gulf War and after 9-11. Mm-hmm. So the opinion in the uh, overseas Chinese media are mostly on the side of George Bush. So as the European 
the European country criticized George Bush's uh, Iraq politics, the Chinese media in overseas didn't follow the European opinion. They all thought that what American is American government is doing is right. Maybe with a wish that a dictator can be removed in Iraq, then probably a dictatorship in Asian country, for instance, in China, can be removed too. I mean, this is a wishful thinking. So I don't think we can blame Liu Xiaobo for his stance to uh, uh, Americans' Iraq war. Um, But what you're saying, it's interesting because, you know, he's made a choice to continue to return to China instead of perhaps traveling the world and maybe getting access to uh, a broader point of view about international politics. And so the importance of his being in China is also maybe leaves him short on a broader view of the wars in the Middle East of, of all kinds. Uh, I agree with you. One of Liu Xiaobo's problem is, although he he read lots of things, lots of books on about philosophy, political th- uh, thoughts, and uh, even about economy, he, he reads Hayek and so on, but he does not read English or not good enough that he feels comfortable that he likes to read an English book. Mostly he reads the translations. So his choice of knowledge is, uh, if, if you want, is second-hand uh, knowledge. And uh, I think I, this is not a critic, but this is just to, to, to let people understand why sometimes he's, uh, as you mentioned, that he sometimes he, he's a, a little bit lack of the, the, the whites of view. It is because of the limitation of his language ability. Yeah. We're talking to Tianqi Liao, who's a Chinese writer, editor, translator, human rights activist. She's with the Independent Chinese Pen Center as well. It seems important that we should talk about the lead-up to his most current arrest. In 2008, he participates in what's known as Charter 08. Can you tell us what that was about? Yes. Liu Xiaobo was one of the main initiator of uh, Charter 08. Uh, as we all know, this is modeled after the Charter 77, which has played really important role in the 70s when Eastern European uh, countries are, were still uh, under the, the communist regimes. When he and his friends drafted this uh, document uh, in November 2008, he sent it out to lots of people, not only inside China, but also outside China. And in this document, he explained in the first part several central terminologies such as freedom, such as human rights, such as uh, constitution, and so on. And in the second part, they mentioned uh, 19, 20 points, that suggestions for the government what to do. For instance, in the 
field of education, in the field of taxation, in the field of industry, and so on. This is a very mild and rational document.、Uh, for lots of people, this is too mild. Lots of people want to have more radical, more、uh, strong change, quicker change in China. But、uh, I think most of the the co-signers, even if they don't agree with the total text. They give their signatures to support this document because they understand why、uh, this very mild and rational tone has been used. Because nowadays,、uh, actually, you can, to a certain extent,、uh, criticize the government, but you should not belong to a, an organization. You, you can be five、uh, hundred. Individuals, but you should not organized uh, uh, to be organized as a group. So people give their、uh, signatures to support this document, just to express their wish of a change. And I think in the contemporary time, this is one. This is and will be、uh, one of the most important document. Which reflects the wish and the dreams of all the Chinese who want to have a better society, a better political system, uh, more uh, uh, rule of law, and uh, a fair uh, environment, uh, a better environment. This reflects really the wish of most of the Chinese.、Mm -hmm. Well, then. And despite what you describe as a mild and rational tone of this document that he co-signs, it is, of course, what ultimately led to the start of his current prison term, which is eleven years to last until twenty twenty. Let me read part of his statement in court, December twenty third, two thousand nine, which you referred to earlier as well. He said, "I have no enemies and no hatred." None of the police who have monitored, arrested, and interrogated me, the prosecutors who prosecuted me, or the judges who sentenced me are my enemies. While I'm unable to accept your surveillance, arrest, prosecution, or sentencing, I respect your professions and personalities, including those who act for the prosecution at present. I was aware of your respect and sincerity in your interrogation of me on December third. For hatred is corrosive of a person's wisdom and conscience. The mentality of enmity can poison a nation's spirit, instigate brutal life and death struggles, destroy a society's tolerance and humanity, and block a nation's progress to freedom and democracy. I hope, therefore, to be able to transcend my personal vicissitudes in understanding the development of the state and changes in society. To counter the hostility of the regime with the best of intentions and diffuse hate with love, I do not feel guilty for following my constitutional right to freedom of expression, for fulfilling my social responsibility as a Chinese citizen. Even if accused of it, I would have no complaints. That's Liu Jiabo's statement in Chinese court, December twenty-third, two thousand nine. And this statement was read at the 2010 Nobel Peace Prize ceremony, which he was, of course, unable to attend. Tianqi Liao, 
Can you envision a way that he might find early release? Uh, what would have to happen in your view for him to be out of prison before mm. 2020? Well, this is really very difficult to say. If he has won the Nobel Prize maybe five years ago or eight years ago, uh, his chance to be released earlier is very great. It's very large. But uh, we all notice that how the Chinese government reacts to... Uh, to the Nobel Prize this time. And uh, this really hard and shameless reaction of the state power to uh, one single person is just unacceptable. But this government just behave as it, it is. It shows its true face. It shows its, its true face not only to Liu Xiaobo, but to the whole world, also to the American people, to their friends, to their enemy, or they thought their enemy, all the same, they just want to show one thing, power. And I have to, to tell you, I really feel quite, really powerless, as a powerless person, I wish that uh, I used to thought <clears throat> in even even in November I thought maybe after the, the the award ceremony in Oslo the government will become a little bit well somehow they don't feel so much openly offended or to lose their face and maybe they will show some gestures but you know we heard nothing not only from Liu Xiaobo, but not even from his wife, Liu Xia. We know nothing. I don't dare to say anything. My secret hope is that after two or three years, when everything comes down, the government probably will give him a medical parole or something like that. But this is just a wishful thinking. I don't dare to say anything. But... Um, I want to say maybe to say one thing. Even Liu Xiaobo has to be in prison for to serve the full sentence, eleven years. I think he will accept that, and uh, with peace and with pride, um, he got what he deserves. The high honor. And uh, he knows that he has to pay the price, too. That's all what, what I can say. Right. It sounds to me like he shares, we talked about the difference between him and the Dalai Lama, but it sounds to me like he shares the long view that the Dalai Lama always talks of in terms of what needs to happen now for change to come maybe in a long time down the road. And uh, it sounds like that's what, Liu Jiabo accepts about his role in, in this process. Yes. Do you know um, uh, Liu Xiaobo has written one article shortly before, maybe four weeks before he was arrested. That was after the American election when Obama becomes the 
president. Three-fourths of the article was about Obama's election, about the uh, the supreme system in the United States, the, about the election and this and that, and how wonderful Obama becomes the president as a colored person, as a young person, energetic person, and so on. Then, the last part of the article was about Dalai Lama. And Liu Xiaobo said, the conflict between Chinese, Han Chinese, and the Tibet can only be solved if Dalai Lama, if we Chinese have the big heart to accept Dalai Lama as our president, as president of the People's Republic of China, then this uh, conflict between the nationality can be solved in a peaceful, rational, elegant way. And I think this is a very wonderful article. It shows really uh, what kind of uh, character Liu Xiaobo has. This paragraph in, the, in, in such an article, I think, is, is really just wonderful and just show that he has a, he, he is tolerant and he is uh, rational and he has uh, passion and feeling for Tibetan. For this article, uh, I think uh, he is really uh, the true um, winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. And given the Chinese government's stance on the Dalai Lama in Tibet, I can only imagine that statement at the end of his piece on the American elections did not win him any new friends no. <laughs> in the Chinese government. No. So, yeah, you are right. Tianqin Yao of the Independent Chinese Pen Center, thank you so much for spending this time with us and helping us to understand and get to know Liu Xiaobo so much better. Thank you very much, Paul. been listening to a rebroadcast of a Peace Talks radio episode from 2011, spotlighting Nobel Peace Prize recipient Liu Xiaobo. Xiaobo died Thursday, July 13, 2017, at the age of 61, while on medical parole in China, where he was being treated for liver cancer. He was seven years into an 11-year prison sentence for trying to overthrow the Chinese government. There's more online about our Leo Jabot episode at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Where you can also find out how to support this nonprofit work about peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Executive Director of Good Radio Shows Incorporated is Nola Daves Moses. Ali Adelman composed and performed our theme music. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to it for supporting Peace Talks Radio.